kid. Well, as I mentioned, my name is Scott, and we're so delighted to have you here with us. If you're here for the first time, if you're even maybe visiting online, uh, the other person next to my mom online watching, uh, we're grateful to have everyone just to be a, kind of be a part of your spiritual journey. What a delight and joy that is. We're starting a new series this weekend. It's great to be a part at like the beginning of a, any conversation. That's what a series is, and it's called You Don't Complete Me. It's about romantic relationships. In 1996, when I was 16 years old in high school, a movie came out called, by, called Jerry Maguire. You guys remember it had Tom Cruise and Cuba Gooding Jr. and Renee Zellweger in it. And uh, they just had lots of great catchphrases all throughout the movie. Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr., remember his phrase was, Show me the money! Show me the money! And then at kind of like the peak of the whole movie, when Tom Cruise goes and finds Renee Zellweger, and he, he barges into this party, and he just looks at her in the eyes and says, You complete me. Do you remember that? Remember that? And what was her response? Her response was, You have me at nowhere. And all the 16-year-old girls in high school, their hearts went pitter-patter. It was wonderful romance. It was a great movie. Isn't that the kind of fantasy that just like fuels in our hearts? It makes great TV, it makes great movies, is when people fall in love. The whole movie is all about that, right? Them finding each other. And it takes an hour and 45 minutes, and then as soon as they find each other, the movie is completed. But you know what it never shows? It never shows what comes after that. <laughs> you know, them kind of dealing with the wounds of their past, them trying to figure out how to make their lives work together. It always just shows that kind of mountaintop experience, the stuff of our fantasies. Here's what I know, and you guys know this too because you're adults, is that all it takes to fall in love is a pulse. You can have a pulse and fall in love, but listen, you guys know this, like staying in love requires so much more. It requires so much more, and that, that's what this series is really about. It's about staying in love, and that's so much more. For me, when I was 19 and 20 and 21, as I met my beautiful bride in college, and we were trying to figure this out, what it means to kind of like, like figure out relationship and to be in a romantic relationship and to eventually bring our lives together as a married couple, I met, we met with my pastor. His name was Dan Gregory. And I had godly parents. I've been a part of godly environments. But my frustration was this. For something that was going to be so defining for the rest of my life, something that was going to be so important, this romantic relationship, I felt like there was a general lack of, of really teaching about what it means to join a life with another, to be in a romantic relationship. And I was frustrated by that. And why, why isn't there more teaching about this? I just wish there was more kind of explicitly said about what it means to... To, to understand how to love someone in a healthy way and to develop a sustaining, growing relationship with somebody. And the thing is, and I don't have to tell you this, but romantic relationships, they're complicated, aren't they? They're complicated. Whether you're 13 or 23 or 33 or 53, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And so one of the reasons that I'm excited to talk about it is it gives me an opportunity about something that often breaks my heart. And that is just watching people that I know, that I love, that I'm connected with, make decisions that ultimately undermine their relationship. Whether it's marriage or it's dating, whether it's even staying single, watching people that 
make what's already complicated? Like, life is complicated enough. Why do we have to add on to that layers of making decisions that ultimately compromise our relationship? I mean, have you ever watched someone make a relationship decision and you look at them and say, oh man, like, I know that works on Netflix, but have you ever seen that, like, work out in real life? Painful. Here's the thing that occurs to me is that right now you and I are doing things morally and relationally. And they're a part of the chapter. This is a chapter in your story, a permanent part of your story. And one day, someone's going to want to hear your story or you're going to want to hear their story. And depending on what you do now, you're going to be tempted to lie about what is happening or what has happened in your life. It's going to be a secret or a series of secrets or things in your life that you might just not want to talk about. And there might be seasons of your life that you just want to gloss over because you're ashamed of it. And the thing is, like, I don't want my kids, our students, I don't want us to have a season of our life that we're ultimately embarrassed about. I want us to be able to write a good story. I want you to be able to avoid that place where you, you see something in the grocery store and you can like avoid that awkward moment. I want you to be able to see that person and to be able to introduce, say, well, hey, this is, this is my husband. And then as you step away from that conversation, you're able to say to your husband, you know what, it didn't work out between he and I in college, but man, he's a great guy. He was a great guy. Or, you know what, she really wasn't the right one for me, but what a great person. That's a great story to tell. And I want my kids, I want you, I want our students to be able to write that kind of story. You know what else is a great story? Hey, you know, when I was 20, I was a mess, and I just, I like, fooled around too much, but it came a place where I just decided that I didn't want to go down that road anymore, and so I made a decision to head in a different direction. That's a good story to tell. Or, or maybe when I was 45, you know, I went through this terrible divorce, and my life just kind of fell off the rails, and I had this season, this time where, you know, like, I'd go out with the girls, and we would do our thing, but... I just made a decision. You know, I don't want that to be the story that I tell my kids and my grandkids in the future. I want to tell a better story. And I changed the direction of my life at this particular day, at this particular season. And, and I don't want you, I don't want my kids to be someone else's regrets either. When they tell their story and, and, and someone, their name comes up, you know, do you want them to be able to say good things about you? Don't you want to be able to see other people and when you run into them not have you be a part of their regret story? You want them to be able to say, oh my goodness, you know what, it didn't work out with you, but man, he was a, he was a great guy. He was a great lady. That's our heart's desire. Is that would be the story that each of us could tell. You know what else would be a good story? A good story would be saying, you know what, our marriage was on the rocks and we were just constantly at each other. We felt like we couldn't figure it out. And it was constantly just like beating heads and like conflicting with each other. And it was just constant conflict. But we just said, you know what, we gotta, we're going to go in a different direction. And so now when you tell your kids this story in a 10 or 5 or 15 years down in the future, you're able to say, you know what, it changed when we made some different decisions about how we were going to interact with one another. Oftentimes the chaos and confusion of relationships is tied to things that we have just accepted to be true. Many times they're myths. Myths in our culture, myths that we've accepted to be true, that drive this confusion. And as soon as you call out the myth, we would all say, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> right? But in truth, it actually undergirds how our culture interacts with romantic relationships. And they drive 
our, our decisions. The first myth, the first myth, and I've talked about it before, the first myth is the right person myth. The right person myth, and it's not necessarily the idea that, hey, there's only one right person out there in the universe. But it's this idea that once you meet the right person, everything's going to be okay. Right? Once you just can find that right person that completes you, then you're going to be you're going to be set. Everything's going to be all right. Now, if you're married, anyone married in the room is going, <laughs> I've met the person, and I know that's not the truth, right? You kind of grumble at that. The myth is that, you know, hey, once I meet this person, they're going to complete me. And, and, and I'm not going to have problems, and you're not going to have problems, regardless of whatever happened in the past, regardless of whatever we're going through right now. And the myth is, you know what, I can... I can play around, I can fool around, I can do whatever I want, I can rack up a body count and treat men or women however I want to. But when I meet the person that completes me, everything will be fine. And I won't have any regrets. And all of the past disappears. And so we can just end up thinking, you know what, I, I, I haven't met the right person yet. Or, or you've met them and you've lived in them, maybe you've married them and you have kids and a dog together and all that kind of stuff. And, you, and now you have this conclusion that things aren't right now, so maybe I've married the wrong person. And so now you start looking out for who? You start looking out for the next right person. That's a myth. It's a myth. And we, we say it and it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that it really does fuel our decisions. It fuels our decisions. In fact, it's a myth that not only is everything going to be fine, but there's kind of a deeper level, like another layer of this whole thing. Because we think not only is everything going to be fine, but everything's going to be fine with me. And all of the bad habits that I've had, now they're not going to be a problem anymore. All of a sudden, I'm not going to be interested in porn if I just find the right kind of person. All of a sudden, my health or my, my habits, my mental health challenges, they're all going to be fine if I could just find the right person. All the financial bad decisions I've made, if I could just find the right person, they're going to help me put all that together, and everything's going to be good if I could just find them. But listen, guys, we're, most of us are adults. Like we know that's not how the world really works. We know that it takes more than that for a satisfying relationship than simply finding someone or being found by someone. We know that. And the problem is we don't hear much about those things. You kind of stand where I was at 19, 20, and 21, and, and you say, well, the only examples I have is what comes out of Hollywood. And all Hollywood do, ever does is tell you like what it means to fall in love with someone, not how to figure out how to resolve conflict or work past our differences or, or figure this stuff out. All we do is we see the TV shows, and they end well, and we clap for joy, and yay, that feels great. But like we said, all it takes is a pulse to fall in love. It takes so much more than that to stay in love. That's the first myth, is, is the right person myth. The second myth is this, it's the promise myth. That there's, there's uh, that, that all we need to do in order to have a, a satisfying long-term relationship is that all we need is to have a promise. We just need to have a vow. That we can, as long as we have a promise, it actually replaces the need to prepare ourselves. That we can commit, we can vow our way into a healthy and satisfying long-term relationship. That you can overcome all of your baggage and all of the problems of your past and your insecurities. If you would just have two things, a promise and a party, a promise and a party, a vow, and I'm going to stand in front of people and we're going to have a great party together and all of a sudden the past disappears. 
Have you ever found yourself going to a wedding and like hearing what everything they had to say and they wrote their own vows and you just sit there in the back row and you're like, oh, that's, I wish you well, good luck with that. But I, I know it's a whole lot harder than just all of this hoopla of this event. It takes a lot more than that. Because here's what we know. We know that a promise is never a substitution for preparation, is it? Think about how many areas of our lives where this is true. In academics, you can't promise your way to a degree, can you? I have so many students that teach music lessons. I've been doing that for 20 years. Every single student that starts with me says, yay, I'm so excited about beginning piano or guitar, drums, or whatever it is. They are pumped on the first day. And I tell every single one of them the same thing. I'm so glad you're excited. What really is going to make the difference is your perseverance when it gets hard. And it's how not excited you are and even how much you would say, well, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise I'm going to practice. What makes the difference? Actually putting in the work. That's what makes the difference. Think about it in sports, in business, in medicine, every area of life. We know that in order to win, you actually have to prepare. Like no college or like basketball or football coach would ever substitute a promise for actually practicing. You can come into the locker room and, and you promise each other. I prom- Hey, I know it's halftime. I know we're not winning, but I promise we're going to win. The season's falling apart. It's not even a passion plea of we promise we're going to do better. What does it actually take to win? You actually have to practice and you actually have to put in the hard work. You have to prepare. And so I just have a, a brilliant statement, you know, comes from an unbelievable place of understanding. If you write this down, it's really powerful. It's this, that if you're not preparing, you won't be prepared. Right? Mind-boggling, isn't it? No one's writing it down, right? Maybe I should unpack it a little bit. It seems common sense, but sometimes in relationships, common sense is not so common, is it? We ignore the rules that we employ in every other area. But listen, I want you to be prepared. I want my kids to be prepared. I want our students to be prepared. For those of us that are in a relationship, I want you to start like preparing Because even though you're committed and you're in and you love her and she loves you, now life has gotten tough and you have a dog and you have a mortgage and you have a minivan and and you're now asking the question, can we actually fix this thing? And the answer is yes. But it's going to take a whole lot more than we just need to fall in love with each other again and go back to like it was in the beginning. There is a way forward. There is a way forward. That's why we're doing this series. And this is where the message of Jesus is is so powerful. It just comes alive. And honestly, this is where following the patterns of Jesus makes all the difference in the world in your current relationship. And this is why even before you come to the conclusion that I believe in Jesus, you should follow after Jesus because following Him makes you better at life. It makes life better for you. Because here's what He did. He left us with one relational principle, and it's what I want to talk about this morning as we start out this series. One relational principle that's so extraordinarily powerful, so defining. It's it's the driving force behind our whole conversation in this series. Because the teachings of Jesus, and they may not help you find the right person, because largely at that point in time, in the first century, they were dealing with arranged marriages, right? That That wasn't what they were after. But it might not help you find the right person, but it will help you become the right person. Following Jesus is going to help you become the kind of person that the person that you're looking for is looking for. And following Jesus is going to help you become the kind of person that you are hoping for is actually hoping for. And so that's just 
begs the question this evening. Are you the kind of person that you're looking for, is looking for? Are you the kind of person that you're hoping for, is hoping for? Are you just looking and searching? Or are you becoming? This is what Jesus tells us. He says, follow me and you'll become. You'll become. You'll become something new. You'll become something different. And if you're married, here's your version. Are, are you becoming the kind of person that you committed to with hoping that you'd actually become? Are you still the person that they were hoping that you'd become? Have you allowed life and kids and money and busyness to get in the way of what you were becoming? Or at least the person that they thought you were going to become? Now, when Jesus steps into the pages of history, this was at a time when relationships, listen, they were a means to an end. Why were you, if you're a lady, the reason you got married was so that you could have some kind of social security, that you could actually go to the market and buy grain. If you were a man, why did you marry? You married because it was a sign of status and it, women were a means to an end, something to be bought, something to be controlled, something to have, something to possess. The world that they were in is so unimaginable for us. And yet Jesus introduces a new relational paradigm that shocked their world. And it would shock the entire world. And finally it became normative for the Roman world that encircled the whole globe. It's a relational paradigm that's simple and yet it's demanding. And yet it's so rewarding and so compelling. And here's the coolest thing, man. Even if you're not sure about the whole Jesus thing, even if you're not convinced that he is who he says he is. It's something that is so powerful. The paradigm is so powerful that you should want the message of Jesus to be true, even if you don't believe it's true. And this is what happens. Jesus gets to the end of his ministry, and he gathers together these, his disciples and all these men that he taught, and he kind of gave them a last rah-rah-ree pep talk. Like, hey, this is what needs to be your defining understanding. This is what needs to motivate you. This is your relational north star. And then he uses an illustration that they would have been dialed into, that they got, that is a little confusing for us. In John chapter 15, these are, these are his final days, his final moments with his disciples. And in John chapter 15, if you want to turn there in the orange Bibles, it's page 737 in the chair in front of you. Page 737, this is what Jesus says to them. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. Guys, this is what I want you to think about. He sits down with his disciples. Is when you think of a relationship with me, I want you to think of them in these terms. Because they understood grapevines. We don't think that way. Some of us do. Some people that grow grapes, right? Think about vines that way. They totally got it. I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. He's the one that's tending the vines. He cuts off every branch in me, that every branch that's plugged into me, he says, that bears no fruit. Why? Because the goal of Jesus, the goal of the whole conversation is to explain how people get connected to God and how God bears fruit for him through them. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? So that it will be even more fruitful, he says. So clearly the goal for this is some kind of fruit bearing. Now, this is something to think about. Each and every person in here, your life has some kind of fruit behind it. What is it? It's your reputation. 
It's the outcome of your life. It's the story that you like to tell, and, and it's also the story that you don't like to tell. For each of us, there's this wake behind us of healthy relationships or unhealthy relationships, either having financial debt or financial security. We all have a wake behind us that's born from the fruit in our lives. And Jesus then says something so surprising and perplexing. This is what he says. I want you to allow me to bear fruit through you. Not just you work at it on your own and this is about your own effort and you just need to double down. You need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You need to have all this discipline. He says, no, there's something that's going to come through me and it's going to affect you. and It's going to show up in your life in a particular kind of way. He says, this is what you got to do. And he uses all this relational language. He says, remain in me. Remain in me as I also remain in you. In other words, this is just his way of saying, stay connected to me. Stay connected to me. Follow me. Trust me. Follow my plan for your life. And then he tells us why. He tells us why. Because no, no branch can bear fruit by itself. Why? Because it has to remain in the vine. You take the grapes off the vine. They're not going to continue to grow. They're not going to continue to bear fruit. It needs the nourishment from the vine. No branch can bear fruit in itself. It must remain in the vine. And again, he's talking about something so familiar to them. If you want to bear fruit, you have to stay plugged into it. And he, he would look then at Matthew and, and, and John and Peter, and he would say, listen, neither can you bear any fruit in your life unless you remain in me. Stay connected. Stay connected. Listen, we, we can't bear the kind of fruit that Jesus wants from our lives if we somehow disconnect from Him. If we're not abiding in Him. That's what some of your Bibles might use, that word abide. Remain in me. In other words, this isn't a, you know what, there was a time when I was eight and I went to church camp and I said a prayer and so I'm good. Or there was a time, you know, I went to this youth conference and I went forward when the guy asked me to. And so I, I just did a little thing. And now I'm, or my parents baptized me, you know, when I was three or four. And so I'm good the rest of my life. I don't need to plug in. I don't need, like, what's all this spirituality thing? I went through these steps. That's not what he's talking about. He says you have to abide. It's not a momentary emotion. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing life of saying, Jesus, you need to nourish me. Your ways need to be my ways. I want this to flow through me, and I want to see that have fruit in the relationships around me. I need to be guided and directed by you, Jesus. And then he says something to them that they already kind of figured out, but he, he slows way down in verse 5. He says this, I am the vine. Jesus, you've already, you've already said that. And you guys are the branches. That's what I've been talking about. Remain in me and I in you. And this is so cool because then he makes a promise to us. He says this, then you will bear much fruit. You're going to bear much fruit. You're not going to bear fruit because you became a master fruit bearer. You're not going to bear fruit because you doubled down or because you had all the discipline in the world. And you were a very moral person. He says you're going to bear fruit because you're plugged in and following me. That's where that comes from. That's, that's why 
when you met that guy or that girl from the past and you remembered how they were and all of a sudden you meet them and they're different and you're like, how are you a different kind of person now than you were then? They don't say, you know, I just figured out five things I need to do with life and then by golly, I just did them and it happened to me. They say, you know, I started showing up at church and I just started reading the Bible and you find out they became a Christ follower and it changed them and they can't even always put it into words. That's the promise of Jesus. You plug into me. You stay connected to me. And you're going to become something different. You're going to become something new. You're going to become something better. And then this is amazing because as we think about what Jesus has to say, it's hard to understand. And then so what do you mean by fruit? Like what does that even look like? What does that mean? And he defines it. It's so powerful. He says this, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Jesus, what are you talking about? I mean, you're talking about the vine and the gardener, and, and you're talking about love now? Well, just hang, hang out for a moment. He says this, just as the Father has loved me, just as the Father has demonstrated his love through me, now here's what I want you to do. Now remain in my love. Fascinating, because this is the same word that he used to define what it means to be connected to the vine, to remain in the vine. So it's like God's the gardener and Jesus is the vine. I'm the branch. You know, we got to stay connected. I'm supposed to stay connected to your love. And here's the surprise. He says, if you follow my commands, you obey my commands, then you'll remain in my love. To which some of us will say, okay, there it is. There it is. There's the bait and switch. I knew that was going to happen. You're in church, and the church people love the rules. And so here it comes. you got like the Ten Commandments, and you're going to add additional rules onto the whole thing. Feels like a bait and switch. Jesus says, okay, I've got a command for you. If you keep my commands, you'll stay in my love. To which we're thinking, okay, here comes the list. And some of you, some of us love lists don't we? Tell me what I need to do, like show up at church on time, you know, volunteer in children's ministry, serve at the soup kitchen. This is what I need to do. Tell me what all the things are, because then as long as I've got that, I got it. I'm good. Any listers here? Like we just like that kind of thing. Tell me what it is. And here's the shocker. Here's the shocker. Jesus sits down with them and they get their pens out. They're ready to write down the list. And they say, this is why you should follow Jesus, even if you don't know if he, who he says he is. You should want this to be true. This is what Jesus says. He says, all right, write this down. Here comes the commandment. You ready? My command is this. Love each other. Love each other. Hold on. Where's the list? Where's the list? Where'd it go? He says, there is no list. There's just one command. To love each other. Jesus, we don't even write that down. We've heard this a thousand times. Sounds like the tagline for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Love one another, right? That's all that it takes. We've heard this. Jesus would say, hold on, hold on. I'm not, I'm not through. Because this is not just love somebody else the way that you want them to love you, like the golden rule. This is not just love in a general term. This isn't all the fruity, foo-foo, granola, tree hugger kind of stuff. Remember, Jesus says this is a different kind of thing. This flows from the Father. He, it's the sources from Him. This is not from inside us. This is what He has done in us and through us, what He wants to have done through us. This is a different 
kind of vibe. It's a different kind of flow. It's a different and specific kind of love. This isn't just, I want you to focus on be more loving. He says, I want you to have a focused, specific love. And it's all about relationship with me. And the same way that I've demonstrated the love of God to you in my life, I want you to have that same brand. I want you to have that same formula. I want it to flow through you. And I want you to love as I have loved you. Listen, as they're sitting in the room that night and they're hearing Jesus and they're scratching their head, they would have had a vague idea about what Jesus would have meant. They would have seen him get down on his hands and feet and wash their feet with all the grime and they saw what service looked like. But there would be days later and weeks later where it would become very real to them the kind of love that Jesus was actually talking about. It was the kind of love that would take their breath away because it took Jesus' breath away. On the other side of the, the resurrection, you know, here's what they knew. They knew that it wasn't some kind of like passive, weak, figured out on your own kind of love. It was the kind of love where you put the other person first. It was the kind of love where you lay your life down for a friend. It was the kind of love where you defer to the wishes of the other person regardless Regardless of what's happened, it's the kind of love where you choose that I'm going to forgive them regardless of what they've done to me. It's the kind of love where you choose that I'm going to love them even when they're unlovely and even when they're unlovable. And even when you would look at them and you would say, you know what, they act to me like my enemy. How can I possibly love them back when they're being an enemy to me? What does Jesus say we do with our enemies? We love our enemies much more. We have to start at this place where we have to ask the question, if I'm going to love other people, my spouse, my kids, my neighbors, if I'm going to love other people the way that Jesus loved me, I have to ask the question, how did Jesus love me? How did he love me? We have to live out this love where we would do unto others as God has done to us through Jesus. That's what he meant by abiding And it wasn't climbing up some mountain and ringing the spiritual bell. It wasn't following a list. It wasn't being really, really spiritual. It wasn't intangible. It was specifically learning, God, how have you loved me? How have you loved me? When I was unlovable. When I would hide in darkness the things that I don't want other people to see. And that I would be embarrassed if anyone found out. That God chose to love me for those seasons in my life where I would rather not tell that story. I'd rather gloss over it. It's recognizing that when I'm an enemy of God, when I was shaking my fist at Him, when I said, you know what, God, I'm through with you, that He would chase after us. And that He would make that first move toward us. Romans chapter 5, Paul says it this way, that God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners. Not once I've got my life all put back together. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that an unjust kind of love? That's, That's the kind of love that doesn't make any sense. Like, 
God, why would you do that? Why would you forgive someone who, why would you love someone if he is love? He took that first step towards us. And listen, once you understand the framework of that, like once you understand that, that it's a guiding principle about how we live with our neighbors and our kids and our spouses. It's how we live in relationship with the person that we're dating or who we're thinking about being married to. As long as that's the North Star for us, that we would say, I'm simply wanting to live out to other people the way that God loves me. Not even how I want them to love me back. I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to love them the way that God loves me. This is how you shift gears from like looking for the right person and finding the right person or maybe from controlling and conforming and like pressuring the person that you have. You know, and if I could just get him to do what I want him to do, if I could just get her to put out the way that I want her to put out, if I could get him to be the man that I want him to, make, to be, then I'll be happy. And Jesus would say, listen, that's never going to work because no one likes to be controlled. No one likes to be manipulated. It's never going to work. You know what? I have an idea. He said, just follow me. Just follow me. You do unto those people the way that I have done unto you. And follow after me. Because listen, I am gentle and I am humble at heart. And here's what I'll do. I'll trade you. I'm going to trade you from this constant need to find the right person to be found by the right person and this constant work of like I need to conform him or her to be in my image what I want them to be if, if you'll just trade that and you'll learn from me the way that I love you you do that here's what gets to happen there gets to be a trade and now you just get to have rest for your soul and you get to have peace in your relationship because I want to teach you how to love as I have loved you and I'm telling you, listen, when two people catch on to this, when two people internalize this, when this becomes the motivation for them, it's amazing what happens. And they become a person worth finding. And they become a w person worth staying for. This is how you make whatever relationship you're in better because both people are heading in the same direction. And here's what it actually requires. And this is where it starts to get a little uncomfortable. Because it requires not that you stare at what they did or didn't do. It requires that you stare deeply into the weight of the gospel. The gospel, the good news. The pastor that recently passed away, Timothy Keller, led a church in downtown Manhattan. He defined for his congregation that the gospel is that you're way worse off than you could ever imagine. But you're more unbelievably loved than you could ever hope for. And it requires this humility to say, you know what? I am an enemy of God. I raised my fist to him. I am unlovely. And yet he loves me. It requires that you go deep into the gospel. And you recognize that you're unlovely. And that you're proud. And that you're arrogant. And yet God steps in your direction. And so maybe, just maybe, if God can forgive you, maybe, just maybe, you can choose to forgive somebody else. Maybe, just maybe, you can say, you know what, I know that they feel like they're my enemy right now, but I was God's enemy. And God loves me, and so I'm going to walk 
and bear thy righteousness. Very purposefully, I want to respond a little differently this week to what we're talking about. In just a moment, we're going to observe the bread and cup. On my right, your left, there's a set, and there's going to be another set over to my left, your right. And each group is going to go get the bread and the cup. And these are symbols. They're physical representations, just reminders of the sacrificial, self-denying kind of love that Jesus poured out for us. Shortly after Jesus said all this to them, this North Star, I'm the vine, remain in me. You need to love other people the way that I've loved you. Jesus brought the bread and the cup to his disciples. And he used them as a way to describe, as a symbol, what he was going to do, how he was going to actually love them. In Matthew, verse 26, this is what it says. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the, for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. He wasn't saying this is literally becoming my body, and this is literally becoming my blood. He was saying the same way that this bread is torn apart, so is my body going to be torn. That he would be whipped and scourged and stripped naked, and he would be beat to a bloody pulp. His body would be broken, and his blood would be spilled out. Why? For the forgiveness of others. And so in just a moment, we're going to create some space and some time for this. And I'm going to ask that you go and grab a cup and a piece of bread and just break, take it back to your seats for a moment. And would this be a time where we would just think about, all right, Jesus, you were broken for me and your blood was spilled for me and you sacrificed yourself for me when I was unlovely. And would, as we take the bread and the cup, would it just become a cry for help? Like, God, I don't always feel like loving this other person. Sometimes I feel like being selfish. Most of the time I feel like being selfish. And yet I'm reminded, Jesus, that you didn't. When you were faced with the opportunity to walk away from it all, you stepped in my direction. Would this just be a cry for help? God, allow me to love my spouse, my fiance. Allow me to love my good-for-nothing brother-in-law the way that Jesus loved me when I was good-for-nothing. Listen, we have to bring the gospel into these relationships. We have to, because according to Jesus, that's the only way we're going to produce the kind of fruit that he wants from us, is when we look at what God did for us through Christ, when we would allow that to guide and direct us. That's how we're going to respond. And then next week, I want to invite you to come back and join us, because next week we're going to take a look a little bit more detailed at the fine print of what it means to love somebody like that. Because the fine print, as we're going to find out, the fine print is going to make you fine. You don't want to miss this. It'll make you worth finding and worth keeping. You're less losing. You're less weeping. When two people, listen, it's so important. When two people choose to embrace the kind of fine print, when they choose to stay connected to the vine, relationships get better. They get more fine. They get more joyful. And it doesn't get better because they accidentally found the right person or they completed you. It's not that at all is that they chose to become the better person. Because following Jesus, listen, it's going to make you better at life and to make life better for you. Let me pray. 
and then we'll observe the bread and cup together. God, thanks for how you loved us. Thanks for how you pursued us. Thanks for how Christ suffered for us. God, that informs us, that points us to the kind of love that you would actually want from us as well. Not weak, self-serving love, but the kind of power that allows someone to lay their life down for a friend. God, as we take the bread and cup, we think about this. We think that you'd ask us to help us in our relationships when it's tough. And to let the way that you loved us just inform how we would choose to love everyone else. God, we come to you in the precious, the powerful, and the passionate and loving name of Jesus Christ.